in our continuing endeavor to bring to our membership an opportunity to hear different state legislators today we have with us Senator Carrie Roberts. Senator, what is your district number and what area does it include? Well, my current Senate district is number 25, which includes Robertson, Cheatham, Dixon, Hickman, and Humphreys County. So for those people from another grand division, I'm kind of north and west of Nashville and the Halo counties. After redistricting, those five counties that are currently labeled Senate District 25 will be renamed Senate District 23. They'll have a new number, and we will add to those five counties a little bit of Montgomery County. That takes care of my second question there. It it doesn't sound like you had a lot of change to your district. By now, a lot of the folks have begun to understand that it is a population density thing. You have to have the same number as close as possible Mm -hmm. of constituents in each of the districts. As the population centers have Mm -hmm. shifted, we have had to move the district somewhat. So it sounds like you haven't been ousted from no, your district. No, there, there are a lot of different ways you can draw the map, as you know, and maybe some people listening. Ten years ago when we went through this process, I found myself drawn out of the district, as you would say it. There were reasons for that. A lot, of, a lot of people tried to make that pretty political, but the reality of it is there just weren't many ways that you could do it. Robertson County and Sumner County were together. They'd grown too large to stay together. You could not put Robertson with Montgomery. Same issue. So your choice was to split Robertson, which is really not a good outcome, or to put it with Cheatham-Dixon, and that was really the best way to do it. So I ended up having to sit out for two years, ended up having to to basically, (laughs) instead of running for re-election, so to speak, it's like having to start over. So it's really hard to draw the map, but having gone through that experience 10 years ago, I think experience this time around uh, was... You know, I've been around here for a while, and and of course, they're always going to ask members, you know, what do you like about your district? What do you not like? And we'll, we'll try to consider that if possible. And I just made the observation early on that my district is just about the perfect size. If it doesn't need to change, I'd love to have it stay the same. And that was the first and last conversation we had about it until we saw the maps that came out a few weeks ago, and I was thrilled to see that my five counties were going to stay together. And then, of course, I discovered that I'd pick up a little bit of Montgomery County. And that's a portion of Montgomery County that, in many respects, really identifies with Robertson County. These are people that have, I think, Adams addresses. So it's good. It'll work out great. How many years have you been in the General Assembly? I won a special election in March of 2011 to fill Diane Black's unexpired term. She won the congressional race in November of 2010. Shortly after that, she resigned from the Tennessee State Senate. She was my state senator. So I ran in that special election. The primary was in January. The general was in March. I won on a Tuesday. And then March 8th was the election. Then I came in the next morning. They they were at the election victory party, and they said, don't stay out too late. You've got to be downtown at 7 a.m. tomorrow, which I had no idea. I had no idea. I thought, you know, I'd be able to take a few days off or something. So I went in the next morning. I was sworn in, and by between 9 and 10 o'clock, I was actually voting on things, which was crazy. So I served through Election Day, November of 2012, when that term came to an end. 
I, at that point in time, Robertson County was moved into the 25th Senate District, so I could not run for re-election. So I was out of office from 2012, and then on November of 2014, I won that election and got back in. So it's kind of a long-winded answer. I've been in here since 2011 with a two-year break in there. That's interesting. And of course, I have followed your career, so I knew the answer to that, mm-hmm. but I wanted you to be able to describe yeah, it to the membership. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's yeah. a lot of new people that don't, you know, in many respects, that's a long time ago, right? right. So it's a lot, of, a lot of new people have come along, moved into Tennessee, and don't know that history. What committee assignments do you currently have? I have been on health, on commerce, judiciary, and uh, agriculture, but the committee I've been on the entire time has been the Senate Committee for Government Operations, which oversees our 260-some entities that comprise Tennessee state government. That can be as big as Department of Education. It can be obscure as the licensure board for reflexology. And so I started chairing that committee after the 2018 election. I'm now the chairman of that committee just thoroughly enjoy it. I also serve on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't have any other committee assignments because government operations is pretty much a year-round job. Y'all actually meet during the summer, and when the General Assembly is out of session, you still have committee meetings, if I follow that correctly. That, That is true. Now, it's interesting because we do take votes at those meetings, but those are recommendation votes because we're not actually in session. So even though we're meeting, we're meeting outside of session. Our votes are are simply recommendations. So you could say they're not, you know, they're not binding. And then we have to come along, we take those recommendations and we roll them into an omnibus bill where then all the rules or the sunset hearings that we've had throughout the year get rolled into an omnibus bill and we vote on it when we're in session. So yes, we hear these Entities, they are audited by the comptroller. They're reviewed by the comptroller. They come in. We have a hearing. They justify basically that they are operating according to the statutory requirements. And if they are, they can request to be renewed. We'll renew them. And if they're not, then we simply put them into wind down and we let them terminate. That happens from time to time. But most of the entities of Tennessee state government, many of them, are necessary. And so we renew them for two more years, three more years, four more years, whatever the case might be. I tend to pay attention. I've got a House member that is a friend of mine that's on GovOps. And so he's always, well, I've got to go to a meeting. And not everybody understands that that takes place throughout the year. And I just thought Mm -hmm. it would be beneficial to let the membership know that that does occur. People think that y'all work about 15 minutes out of the year, and that's not the case. This is the busiest part-time job you'll ever have. And in, in our case, it's really, you work on government operations, It's pretty much a full-time job with part-time pay. You know, the fastest way, I'll just kind of laugh and say, you know, when you're in this position, you're casting good conservative votes and and you're doing what we need people to do. You're probably going to run for re-election. When you run for re-election, you know, you always have to deal with people who decide that they want to run. They can do a better job than you, and that's part of the process. You know, that's what happens. But it's always kind of funny to see the reaction on someone's face when they find out how little the job pays. We don't get paid like the Washington people. We get paid, you know, twenty some thousand dollars a year. We don't have the expense account. 
my district's 2,500 square miles. When you travel around that district, you're either paying for that out of your own pocket or you're paying for it out of campaign funds. But you don't you don't get to submit a um, reimbursement request from the state of Tennessee and get reimbursed for it. So sometimes the people who are looking at running, they find that that's the deal. It's like, oh, well, uh, no thanks. I'm not I'm not going to run for state. Maybe I'll maybe I'll run for Congress where I can get paid two hundred thousand dollars a year and have a ten million dollar expense account. But I think I'll pass on state house or state senate. My senator and representative from the district that I'm in. They hear from me weekly throughout the year, Mm -hmm. and I keep trying to tell people that we're obligated to do that under Article 1, Section 23. We're supposed to instruct our elected representatives. And if we don't avail ourselves of that opportunity or, as I say, take on our obligation with the Constitution, Mm -hmm. we're missing Mm -hmm. our duties as a citizen. You can ask Chris Todd. I I avail myself of that opportunity. That's not a problem. Well, it's sort of a form of the old adage, you get what you pay for. If you don't invest in that, then you're going to have bad government. And and the greatest check of all the checks and balances, the greatest check that exists in the system is the citizen's right to do just that, to inform and instruct their legislator about the matters that are important to them. I agree. What legislation have you carried that impacts the right to keep and bear arms in Tennessee? Well, let me start by talking about what we have this year. Uh, You mentioned the immunity bill before we went on air, and we want to give big credit to the late Mike Carter, Judge Mike Carter, for the work that he did on behalf of the firearm owners in Tennessee and how they can have some of the immunities and protections that they need when they have a legitimate use of their firearm. And so Chris Todd has worked really, really hard on this. And I want to give a lot of credit to him because he is, you have a House sponsor and you have a Senate sponsor. And sometimes one of those is really the one taking the lead that's done the heavy lifting. And that would be Chris Todd. I want to say that very loudly and clearly that he is the lead on this bill. I'm the Senate sponsor. If we're able to get this thing across the finish line, then uh, yes, it's a team effort, but Chris is the one that that did the work at the front end. And uh, I want to be sure to recognize that. The second bill that I have is same thing came from the House member Rusty Grills has a bill that re- reclassifies handgun as a as a firearm. I'm still trying to sort through that bill and get the understanding of it that I need. Probably any questions are, are best left to Rusty. But you know what I what I want to do if if I may, I, I really want to talk about a bill that doesn't exist right now, but what we need to do. And I hope we can do this maybe maybe next year. There were a lot of people who were were very happy with the governor's so-called constitutional carry bill. There were a lot of people that said, good, finally. And I understand why they say that, because it was called constitutional carry. And for, for a lot of people, that's what it was, and it met their definition of it. But for those of us that dive deeply into this issue, we don't look at that like that was true or is true constitutional carry. And as much as I believe that we, and John Harris and I both use this analogy, but we put it at different yard lines. So John Harris and I both agree that the ball moved down the field. We have a real disagreement (laughs) over how far the ball got downfield. And I think it got further downfield than John did. Regardless, there is a fundamental flaw with this whole thing. And that is that Tennessee code is in many respects, or I shouldn't even say many respects, I should just say Tennessee Code, when it comes to the issue of firearms, is really not written with the intent of the Tennessee Constitution. Here's what I mean by that. 
the Tennessee Constitution is pretty clear that you've got the right to bear arms. Tennessee Code says you really don't have the right to bear arms unless you can prove that you do. If you caught that, if a listener, I know, Richard, you get this, but if a listener's, uh, I want to say it again, the Constitution says you have a right to carry unless you don't. TCA says you don't have a right to carry unless you can prove you do or you can prove defense. So, for example, our permit to carry is just really a defense, right? The presumption is you're not supposed to have that firearm unless you can you can prove it. So we've got this fundamental inversion or contradiction or 180 degrees, however you want to say it, between the Constitution and the way TCA is written. Well, what is the supreme law of our land, the Constitution or TCA? In our Constitution. So our TCA, our Tennessee Code, should be written in a way that agrees with, is consistent with, with respect to our Constitution. So if you really want to have constitutional carry, it's a little bit of a heavy lift, but what you would do is you would go into TCA and you would flip this 180 degrees from you can't have a firearm unless you can provide a defense to you can have a firearm unless you're prohibited from having it. That's the bill. That is the big prize. That is the the kind of the mother of all bills. And if we can ever do that, then I think the purist, as well as kind of the layman, would all say the same thing. We truly have constitutional carry in the great state of Tennessee. So as much as I appreciate the fact the governor took this on as an issue, what the governor team tried to do is they tried to fix it based on a flawed TCA. They tried to take what they had and they tried to turn it into constitutional carry. Well, I don't I don't think that until you fix TCA, you know, it's just you're always going to run into problems, as has been noted in the meantime, you start to discover that there are situations where, well, what do you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? It didn't get covered. It didn't get addressed. What's the default position? Can someone carry a firearm here? Can someone be charged for concealed carry in, in these particular circumstances? And we've got a lot of work left to be done. What's going to be interesting to see is what is the political will, not just of the legislators, but of the seven main residents of Tennessee to keep working on this? Well, obviously, if you have a quote-unquote constitutional carry that passed last year, it could take the wind out of the sails of a lot of people, or, or they just say, well, we did it. You know, they just declare victory and they move on to some other project. But then when you start having these outlier situations that are going to wind up in court, that may restart the clock, so to speak. That may get it back on people's minds and say, you know what, we really need to just step up to the plate, swing for the fences, hit the Grand Slam home run, and do it, and do it right. I don't have any criticism of what the governor did. It moved the ball down the field. We can argue how far it moved it down the field, but it moved the ball down the field. And there's a lot of other states where people are envious of what we did. You and I both know we didn't do it the way it needed to be done. And that is to do a fundamental rewrite of TCA that reverses this premise so that the assumption is you're allowed to have a firearm unless there's a reason whereby you're prohibited. Sorry, I, I probably had too lengthy of an explanation there, but that, that is the ultimate goal when it comes to the Second Amendment. I think you answered the next question that I would have asked you about Article 1, Section 26. I'm going to proselytize just a little bit here. I agree with you 100% on changing the TCA code. 39.17.13.07 still says it's a crime in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. for a citizen yeah. to carry you're a, a loaded firearm. You're a criminal unless yeah, that's you're it. a criminal. You're you're a criminal unless you can prove you're not, and that's the 180 degrees that needs to be flipped. You're a law-abiding citizen who has a right to carry, unless you know the reason. There's a reason, you know, you don't constitutional reason that you don't. I agree with you 100 percent, and I think it's very important that folks get that. The explanation that you just gave is one of the best that I've heard, and I appreciate it. I have always said this to anybody that is asked. If you want to see good dissertation on the Senate floor, they need to wait until Kerry gets up and speaks. <laughs> oh, you're, so let me tell you, I, I'm just going to say that that's very kind of you. If you could convince my colleagues that that's true i'd i'd really owe you i there there are times when i get up to speak that i see some of my colleagues roll their eyes and they can joke about me being long-winded sometimes and the problem that i have richard is you know some people sit down and think about what they're going to say before they say it so before a word is uttered from their mouth they know what they're going to say and then there are the people that think out loud we all know people that way. And so we speak, and as we speak, we develop our thoughts, we formulate our thoughts, we, we restate, we say something, then we turn right around, we say it again in a better way. And so we repeat ourselves. That's me. I have a tendency to think out loud, and I, I try really hard. If I know I'm going to speak on the Senate floor, I try real hard to really give some thought about what I want to say so I don't do that. The problem is there are plenty of times that I don't think I'm going to say something, but then somebody will set me off. And I'll feel compelled to say something. I'll get up and speak and, uh, you know, it'll end up being a real missed opportunity because if I had really given some thought to it, I probably could have done something far more effective. But that's very kind of you to say thank you. I'll take I'll take the compliment and move on. There's a House member that says, well, you know, sometimes he's asked to spend 15 minutes on a topic. He said, and what I've tried to do is pattern myself after Archie, who can give a 30-minute dissertation on Article 1, Section 26 and do it, you know, without taking a breath from one minute till he's finished. We've already talked a little bit about this, what you see about the upcoming uh, session and Second Amendment. I think mm -hmm. we've got immunity bill that is up that you're going to sponsor in yeah. the Senate, yeah. I think, is one of the most important things. And I was at a meeting with Judge Carter when we talked about the path that we were going to take for this Um mm -hmm. Chris Todd has been working this, like you said, for a number of years, and he and I sat with Leader Lambert and Judge Carter in his office with John Harris, and we talked about the path that we needed to take to get to where we needed to be. And mm -hmm. Judge Carter is one of the smartest guys that I ever met, and he was a true constitutionalist, and he believed. I've heard him say many times, you know, I don't believe in this permit situation because the Second Amendment doesn't require it, but That's I'm right. hopeful. Yeah this year that what we're able to do is to take the thoughts that he helped us put down on paper and get them across the goal line. We don't need a first down at this point. We don't want to be, you know, down on the one yard line before to go. Yep. We need to get yep. this one across. So, yep. you know, that's what I'm hopeful to see in, in this second half of the general assembly is that we actually finish the work that he helped us start. And I hope that we can yep. hold him up, you know, let him know that we weren't going to give up his thoughts and the work that he started. You bring up, uh, and let me make this observation, you bring up a really good point because the, the importance of doing this now is that you've got a bunch of legislators that saw his work, who respected him. We, if we put this off and go through an election cycle, we could have 
just the turnover that you have. There's more turnover up here than what people realize. All of a sudden, you can have a significant number of legislators that never had the privilege of working with Judge Carter and understanding just what you said, what a true constitutionalist he was, his love for the Constitution, wanting to get these things right. To me, when we were talking about this bill earlier among ourselves here in the office, I just thought it was critically important that we remind everyone this is something that Mike was in favor of and had worked on. And I just I just think it's a great idea to attach Mike's name to it. After the 2022 election, get a new crop of legislators in here. That may not that may not be as meaningful, but I just think that's it's a very good strategic move, but more important than strategy, it's a proper move because it really gives credit where credit is due. I concur. I think it is showing allegiance for the folks out here that thirsted for leadership mm-hmm. and for somebody to mm-hmm. take up the banner for us, and he did that. And so I think it is important that we honor that commitment. What steps can the average TFA member take to further the restoration of our right to arms as granted us in 1796? I'm going to give you an answer that you're probably not going to see coming, and then I'm going to give you probably more of an answer that you would expect to see. The first thing that I want to say is if there's one thing that I've noticed, many of our most our strongest Second Amendment supporters are also believers. They're people of faith. They're people who possess a tremendous amount of common sense. They're people who see what's going on in Washington and they just shake their heads in disbelief, but also a tremendous amount of sadness that our great nation is being run by fools and idiots. Those are pretty strong words, but I don't know how else to say it. The first thing that not just, and I'm going to say really is people of faith, not just Second Amendment you know, supporters, as people of faith, and I, I said this to the Humphreys County GOP last week, and I said, I'm preaching to myself first, okay, because this convicted me. I I was convicted by how much time I spend on the internet getting worked up about things, you know, the websites I go to, the stories I read, versus how much time I spend praying about the direction of our country, the leaders of our country, the leaders of our state, our communities. The first answer to this is probably out of left field is, I want to challenge everybody to be recommitted to spending some time in prayer for our country, for our leaders, for our state, for its leaders, because I'm, I'm going to tell you something, Richard, this is, this is true. You've been up here plenty of times and you've seen all these green books that make up Tennessee Code annotated. People who love Jesus don't need to be governed by the contents of most of those books. <laughs> they they do the right thing. Now, we still need those books for how we do business transactions and details on contract law and, you know, stuff like that. But we need this nation to, in humility, kind of recognize where we are and where we need to be and, and put God above all. That's the first thing. The second thing is Stephen Covey, the famous author and speaker, famously said, seek first to understand than to be understood. We end up with so many, the Second Amendment is a very volatile issue in a lot of people's minds with our friends and neighbors. And sometimes I'm real quick to tell somebody what I think instead of taking a moment to understand what they think or where they're coming from. And if I look back in my life, I can tell you that my most successful conversations when it comes to trying to be persuasive 
and open somebody's eyes to the wisdom of the Second Amendment, the value of the Second Amendment, how that creates a more orderly society, not a more violent one, is if I employ this technique of seeking to understand first where somebody's coming from. Because, you know, most people, they want to feel safe in their home. They want to feel safe in their car. They want to feel safe in their community. They lament the crime. You know, you, you got to be talking to the real hardcore leftist to be talking to someone who wants to defund the police. And maybe those who live in Nashville, you know, run, work with people, run into people who have those feelings. But most of us that live in rural Tennessee, we don't very often run into people who want to defund the police, right? That would be, <laughs> that would be pretty unusual. So seek first to understand as you're having these conversations about the Second Amendment, ask people, tell me what you think. Now, tell me why you think that. Tell me what's important to you. And in so doing, the door is going to be opened to have a really meaningful conversation where you're going to find out pretty quickly that a lot of us agree on many of these issues. It's just some of these folks never considered how the Second Amendment works to help us with these issues. Because why? Because they've listened to CNN. They've listened to the media. They've listened to the leftists. And sometimes when they get to talking, they talk themselves out of what they learned from CNN, and they talk themselves right over to our side. But that doesn't happen if we start out like what I've done on many occasions, just trying to cram down what I think or what I know onto someone and kind of, it's like the verbal version of arm wrestling. I want to overpower them. I want them to cry uncle. Well, that's not going to win anyone over to our side. So prayer, and like in my case, I just try to use my gift of gab, so to speak, to ask really good questions and get people talking. And you'd be shocked how many times people talk themselves right into our position. Well, Senator Roberts, I appreciate your time today. It's to our benefit. I have a number of your, and I've learned how to, I should say, strip out video from the state website. And mm -hmm. I have this little compilation of Kerry Roberts moments that I put up <laughs> and it's, you know, it's instructive and, it, and it's good oh. for people to know that we have folks that will actually take our side. So I want to thank you for your time today. We appreciate everything that you do for us and we look forward to seeing what this session brings us. Thank you very and much. Can I just say, can I just say to the people listening, Richard Archie does great work down here and I want to thank you for the amount of time an effort that you put into not only coming down here, but traveling all around Tennessee to talk about Second Amendment issues. You do a great job. You and John are a great team in the way you work together, and I appreciate your work. Thank you, Karen. We appreciate it, and we will talk to you later. Thank you.